Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. What does the arrival of the emerald ash borer in Maine mean for the people of the Penobscot Nation? You never can accept the death of something that's so ancient and so culturally appropriate in our daily lives. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll discover the cultural significance of the ash tree. Plus, for Native Americans, a trip to the museum means seeing your culture on display. It's a conversation that has been going on for decades, right? This idea that what does it mean as a Native person to walk into a museum and see artifacts behind glass? A new playlist of poetry hopes to help visitors understand what it means to be Indigenous today. We'll also discuss some of our favorite regional podcasts, and we'll hear from entrepreneurs turning hemp into profits and kombucha into vodka. I confess we're still tinkering with it. (laughs) A lot of what we do is just sort of learn by doing because no one's ever done this before. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. The invasive emerald ash borer has now made its way across New England, and it's destroying our ash trees. Here's Claire Rutledge. She's an entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. The emerald ash borer is a beetle, and the larvae of the beetle feed on the living layer between the bark of the tree and the wood of the tree. And that is a layer called the phloem, and it it transports the sap from the leaf to the roots, and they eat that. And when they eat that, when there's enough of them, they girdle the tree and kill the tree. And what tends to happen is when they come into a new area, there's a small number of them brought in by firewood or however it is they get there. But there is nothing that stops their numbers increasing. There is no specific natural enemies that are eating them. And they don't have any competition because the living phloem of an ash tree protects itself against things eating it. But for whatever reason, they do not protect themselves. They have no resistance against the emerald ash borer. And they, they will, as the infestation continues, kill trees at a faster and faster rate as the density of the beetle per tree increases. And so at the beginning of an infestation in an area, it might take seven or eight years to kill a tree. And by the end, it may only take two years. The loss of ash trees will be significant in both our forests and our urban areas where the trees were plentiful. But for the Penobscot Nation of Maine, this loss would be especially devastating. Back in July, we talked with John Banks. He's director of the Department of Natural Resources for the Penobscot Nation. And John Bear Mitchell, a citizen of the nation and lecturer of Wabanaki Studies and Multicultural Studies at the University of Maine in Orono. We started by hearing from John Bear Mitchell about the significance of the ash tree to the Penobscot Nation. Yeah, we have several stories that talk about our relationship to the ash trees. One significant story is where we were created from that ash tree. We uh, have a creation story that talks about one of our people who was not necessarily human, but he was not necessarily an animal or a spiritual deity as well. He was a combination of all. And his name means the man from nothing. He showed up one day, and his name is Gluskub or Gluskabe. 
And he shot an arrow into an ash tree. And from that ash tree, when it split, came the people. And it really doesn't tie into like our origin, but it ties into who we are. It ties into that cultural heritage (laughs) of our use of that. It's very important for us. And the tree, the brown ash tree, has that significance and that importance in that it gave us life in some way and that life is to continue on. And then in your tradition, I can imagine that if the ash tree is sick or dying or if there aren't as many ash as there have been in the past, that that must signify something. There must be something to it if this is in part of a fertility story, then the death of the ash tree or the demise of the species must be hugely problematic symbolically in in reality. It is. In reality, for those who make the baskets and those who maintain that tradition, symbolically for everybody else, like myself. But what is most significant about this is that as Penobscot people, we've seen the demise of resources over lifetime spans, not just one, but several. This is one we're seeing within our own lifetime, that this problem came about and will you know, decimate the population of brown ash trees in our individual lifetime when this is something that's very odd. We've seen many different cultural aspects disappear over many lifetimes. But to have it come around this quick, it does have some significance. You never can accept the death of something that's so ancient and so culturally appropriate in our daily lives so quickly. That's the biggest problem. John Banks, I'd love to hear more from you on this about how the tribe has been viewing this over the course of perhaps decades as you've seen some of this this decline and what you're doing about it. We worked very closely with the Wabanaki Center and the Maine Forest Service, as well as the federal government, to engage in a fairly in-depth research of this particular bug and, you know, what its characteristics are in the overall ecology of things. And it's like a lot of foreign diseases that have been brought over to this country from Asia or Europe in that there are no natural mortality factors uh, here. And so all of the forestry professionals are predicting that this particular bug will eventually wipe out all of the ash trees in the state. So in a way, it's kind of almost like some of the diseases that affected the human populations on this continent with the arrival of new diseases that don't have natural mortality factors like they do in the country that they originated from. John Bear Mitchell, when, when John Banks talks about this disease of these beetles coming from overseas, uh, he makes a very clear point that this is connected in some ways to the long history of Native people here in America, that so much has been brought from overseas. Do do you see this as part of a a larger continuum? I mean, a lot of us see this as, yes, another invasive species coming from somewhere else into our environment, but perhaps we don't have the closeness to the devastation that can be wrought that you and your nation do. The face of death wears the same face as friendship. And so you got to be careful traditionally in what you perceive as the face of friendship. And this is in our prophecies. They don't necessarily show themselves 
until later on down the road after you gain trust. So we need to gain trust. And obviously, indigenous people have been very trustful in the earlier stages of the development of this country, only to realize that those faces didn't have good intentions, although they looked like they did. I think we can use that analogy in maybe this particular case. I think these false promises that have been made to us throughout history have to be considered so that we don't repeat those same mistakes. What happens if, as scientists predict, the ash borer and the effects of climate change wipe this tree right off the map, that we don't have ash trees anymore up and down Maine, all across New England, and certainly throughout your nation? What, what happens then? We find something else. And we make the decision on what we find to keep that tradition going. The unique relationship we have with the ash tree is very important. And we need to do everything we can so that we can tell future generations if it does fail, that we tried everything we could do. And we always think for seven generations down the road, not just our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, but what happens seven generations down the road? You know, what, what do we want them to remember us as? those who gave up or those who fought and did every single thing that we knew with the technology we have at this time to help them maintain that tradition. But that becomes another story then. That's a story that, that you get to create and you get to tell about adaptation or, or change that, that you're making for seven generations down the road. My first thought when you asked that question, John, was resiliency. The tribes all tribes in this country have lived through so much hardship. It's almost a miracle that some of us are still around, but I think being resilient and being able to make those changes and adjust is, is what kept us alive for thousands of years. Hmm. John Banks and John Bear Mitchell, thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. The Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University is celebrating contemporary Native culture while challenging visitors to examine their understanding of what it's like to be indigenous today. WBUR's Andrea Shea brings us to the museum, which is doing this with a special poetry playlist. Enter the Hall of North American Indian at the Peabody Museum, and you're greeted by a recording of thunder and rain from the Great Plains. You see drawings by Lakota Sioux warriors, a headdress, sitting bull's tobacco bag, and sharpened objects of war tucked inside display cases. For Shelley Lowe and many other Native Americans, this experience raises questions. It's a conversation that has been going on for decades, right? This idea that what does it mean as a Native person to walk into a museum and see artifacts behind glass? Lowe, a member of the Navajo Nation, is executive director of the Native American program at Harvard University. 
artifacts aren't supposed to just be looked at. They're supposed to be used on a daily basis. It's not why Native people create artifacts, usually. Lowe is part of the team behind the museum's new Native American Poets Playlist. They created it to help reframe and interrogate what it means to be Native American today. So to kind of talk about that in a sense that let's put it into a poem and then let's put it out there for people to listen to while they're actually standing there looking at the artifacts behind the glass, right, that you can't touch, that can't be used, I think it's very powerful. I'm Trevino Brings Plenty, and I'm going to read Not Just Anybody Can Have One. So I'll use my tribal enrollment until it disappears until I'm kicked out of my tribe for questioning the motives of nepotism, until the U.S. government makes policy change, until there's enough rumor to make it true. Natalie Diaz Imoik, Hamakavch Idum, Hokulo Imanch, American Arithmetic, Nikonov. Native Americans make up less than 1% of the population of America. 0.8% of 100%. Oh, mine efficient country. Visitors listen to the poetry through headsets as they wander the galleries filled with artifacts. Tommy Pico's poem confronts the museum setting head on. I can't write a nature poem because that conversation happens in the Hall of South American Peoples in the American Museum of Natural History between two white ladies in buttery shawls as they pass a display case of traditional garb from one tribe or another. It doesn't really matter to anyone. And that word natural in natural history hangs. Pico is a Kumyai writer and podcaster living in Los Angeles. Native American, indigenous, Indian, however you want to say it, we're here, we're alive, our voices matter. We aren't relics of the past. We're a part of a continuing, changing pop culture landscape. Pico's anger over the preservation of historic objects while living Native American people suffer from endemic rates of suicide and health issues leaps through the headphones. I hope they come away with the idea that American Indian culture is dynamic and can be appreciated without being co-opted or without being appropriated. What if by not wearing a headdress in your music video or changing your damn mascot and perhaps adding 0.05% of personal annoyance to your life for the 20 minutes it lasts. The 103 young people who tried to kill themselves on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation over the past four months wanted to live like 50% more. Some of the poems are edgy. Some of them are very, you know, a lot of pathos in there. Larry Spotted Crow Mann, a writer, healer, and storyteller, was part of the Poem Selection Committee. He's Nipmuc and lives in Webster, home of the lake with the longest name in the world. Lake Charagagamog, Man Charagagamog, Man Charagagamog, Man Charagagamog. <laughs> Mann says the poets represent tribes from the east, west, north, and south. The writings wrestle with issues including colonialism, the legacy of Indian boarding schools, climate change, and cultural exploitation. For man, the image of artifacts and poets intermingling inside a museum is potent. I heard an elder once say that uh, a museum is a crime scene. It's an active crime scene, you know, where, where all these artifacts are like kind of accumulated and put in one place, things that were taken. And it kind of speaks to all that 
those times and those difficulties and the vicissitudes of being an indigenous person and how we're going to overcome and move forward as a people. Margaret Noden is keeping her ancestral language alive through her writing and teaching of indigenous literary studies at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. I always write the poems in Anishinaabem one first, and then I try to do justice to them in English. As frozen flakes fell in clusters, sun high in the sky, snow deep outside, he began to bend his thoughts, considering what is true and what is not, considering Scotty and Puckwis and the way they walked on the snow. Noden says these days we all seem to have playlists running through our lives, but this one you don't necessarily expect. She believes Harvard and the museum pulled the Native American poets' playlist together respectfully by involving the Native community in the process. The poetry goes out, people enjoy it, the poetry comes down, but those relationships are still there as an experience to see more of that happen in that city and in connection with Harvard in particular, is just a really good thing. Long overdue. (laughs) Especially considering the school and the museum stand on the former homeland of indigenous people. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. The Poetry Playlist is available at the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University until November 30th. For more information, visit nextnewengland.org. Coming up, it's a golden age of podcasts about New England. We'll listen next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. On March 18, 1990, 13 priceless works of art by painters like Rembrandt, Manet, Degas, and Vermeer were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. I should say the estimated price of the heist was about $500 million. It's the largest unsolved art theft in history, a story that's fascinated for almost three decades and is now the subject of a hit podcast from WBUR called Last Scene. We spoke with Kelly Horn, the co-host, senior producer, and senior reporter of Last Scene, She started by telling us about the woman who the museum is named after, Isabella Stewart Gardner. Well, Isabella Stewart Gardner was a remarkable person. She was a real visionary, and at a very young age, she was touched by art and uh, had traveled. She had had the means to travel with her family and so had an awakening very early in her life to the power of art. But it was later after she lost her only child, a a little boy named Jackie, just before he was two, that she traveled to kind of heal and regain her spirit. And the travel reanimated her. She went all over the world every couple of years. And that's where she really realized that every culture has its expressions of beauty. And she began to collect art. She had an ambition at a very early age to one day have a museum. And uh, that's what she built. That's what she created. So I want to get in now to the story that you tell about this art heist and 
and this mystery that's persisted over the decades. But a, a large part of the first episode of Last Scene really is about the importance of the artwork itself. And I'm wondering, as you did your research and your reporting, if your view about the importance of this work began to change, if you began to think differently about these works of art that were stolen beyond just the dollar figures that are attached to them. I'm really glad you asked that because I have to say that it was the dollar figures that were the hardest for me to wrap my head around. I I can't wrap my head around a figure like $500 million, but I can wrap my head around something that would have meant something to her. And so as I began looking into the heist itself, I had to step back first and read everything that I could about Gardner. And in reading not only biographies of her, but her correspondence with her collectors, uh, her dealers, and, and with friends, you get a real picture of what these pieces, individual pieces, meant to her. And so I began to feel this loss as her loss. You know, she she had written to the dealer in Italy who found Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, that his description of the sea picture makes her fairly ache for it. I mean, uh, so you can imagine what that would have meant to her. Besides that, beyond what it might have meant for Gardner, I think probably the most eloquent spokesperson for this loss was Anne Hawley herself. She was the director of the museum at the time of the robbery. She had only been on the job for six months at the time. And she described it to me as, you know, imagine that you could never hear Beethoven again or see Hamlet again. And and I was thinking, well, what if I couldn't hear Purple Rain again? You know, it's <laughs> like you think about things that you almost take for granted as uh, signals of beauty in our culture. And these pieces are just gone. And that's that's a loss for all of us, not just for the museum. Let's actually hear a bit from your podcast. And here is Anne Hawley, as you say, the director of the Gardner Museum at the time. It was overwhelming to see what had been done. I mean, to trash a museum like that, it was just like the barbarians had been through. I mean, to pull frames off the wall and shatter the glass. And it was clearly not people that loved art that did that. I mean, cutting paintings out of frames. I mean, it's unspeakable. It's, and I I guess I experience this, I often think of it's like having a death in the family. It's just, it's too big to really talk about. As she describes uh, barbarians going through the museum, maybe you can talk a bit more to us about what exactly took place that night. What was stolen and in in filling the gaps and and how exactly it was taken. The night of March 18th, actually it was the morning of March 18th, 1990, it was in the wee hours after uh, St. Patrick's Day, two men dressed as Boston police officers came to the Palace Road entrance of the museum. They said to the security guard uh, that they were responding to a disturbance, and he buzzed them in. And uh, once inside the museum, it was very easy for them to uh, have their way with the museum. They had him step away from the desk, which was where the only panic button uh, in the museum was to alert distress to the outside world. They had him call the other guard that was on duty back from his rounds. And they simulated an arrest. They said, you know, don't we have a warrant out for you? Show me your ID. Got him up against the wall, handcuffed him, did the same to the other guard, and then brought them down to the basement and uh, shackled them. They were about, I would say, 50 feet apart from each other in the basement, so they couldn't communicate with each other. And they spent the night there. 
And then the thieves uh, went up into the museum. We know that they went straight to the second floor, and they uh, went straight to the Dutch gallery for those Rembrandts that they stole. I want to actually play a clip here. And this is Anthony Mori. He's the, the Gardner Museum's security director. He plays a prominent role uh, not only in your podcast, but in, but in the history of the Gardner since the heist. He wasn't there at the time, but he's been leading the investigation ever since. And, and he, he walks through a little bit about uh, the strangeness of that night, the, the alarms in various rooms and some of the choices that the, that the robbers made. Let's listen. There's no alarm in the blue room on the first floor. All of the motion sensors from that night were either the, the doors when they came in or out, or the second floor. So what does that tell you? As someone who looks at these art heists constantly, I can tell you there, it looks like two different crimes. Something's not right. There's no getting around that. If something is not right, when you look at what was taken from the second floor, the manner in which it was taken, and what was taken from the blue room on the first floor, it's almost as if it were two different heists because the MO is different. They're not similar, except that they happen the same night. So, Kelly, what did that tell you as a reporter, that this idea that the people who are most closely investigating this seem to believe that there are almost two different types of crimes happening on two different floors of the museum? Well, what it told me as a reporter is always go back to the beginning because you think you know. You know, this is a story that's been out there for so long and so much has been written about it and said about it. And you think you know, but then you hear that and you think, no, I don't know anything. So it really, uh, just that revelation alone caused me to question a lot of things I had taken for granted as true about the Gardner heist. And it makes you wonder who would have who would have uh, been able to, to take that? Who would have been the person who would have had access to that painting? Why that painting? How did it get out of that room? Why did the alarms not go off? Uh, it almost makes your head explode with all the possibilities. It really is a fascinating story, and we're going to be interested to, to follow along. Kelly Horan is co-host, senior producer, and senior reporter of Last Scene, the new podcast out of WBUR in the Boston Globe that explores the theft of these 13 pieces of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum back in 1990. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us, and, and thanks so much for this great reporting. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Another unsolved crime got the podcast treatment in New England this year. NHPR's new Bearbrook tells the story of four bodies found in Bearbrook State Park and the investigation to find out who they were and who put them there. Jason Moon is a reporter for NHPR and he's host of Bearbrook. He joined us to discuss the podcast. He started off by telling us about Bearbrook State Park and the discovery of a barrel there in 1985. So Bearbrook State Park is uh, right in the middle of New Hampshire. It's mostly in a town called Allenstown, New Hampshire, about 15 minutes east of Concord. And inside the barrel uh, was a pretty grisly discovery. It was two bodies, two murder victims. One was an adult female estimated to be in her late 20s, and the other was a girl child, maybe 9 or 10 years old. The story of how that barrel was discovered was is sort of interesting. There was a, an initial partial discovery by a group of kids, 11-year-old boys who were playing hide-and-seek out in the woods, came across the barrel, 
sensed there was something strange about it, but ultimately never looked inside. And so they have the strong memories of that because they found out later, of course, that, um, that there were bodies inside. And that second discovery came when a hunter came across the barrel and then called the police. And uh, one of the first, actually the first officer to arrive there was an officer by the name of Ron Montpleasure. He was a police officer in Allenstown for 23 years. And here's what he, what he told me about that day. The, the barrel was on the ground, and there was a bag. And when I opened the bag, well, the face was, the decomposed face was looking right at me. I couldn't believe that there's a decomposed body. Um, they're looking me right in the face, staring at me. I, I, I can picture it right now. I can picture exactly what that face, how it looked. It's it's such a grisly discovery, and I'm I'm wondering, uh, first of all, though, Jason, when these bodies are discovered, does anyone know anything about them? Who who they are? Why they're there? Absolutely nothing. That was and continues to be the really baffling thing about the case is uh, it's a it's a, just an utter complete mystery. They're, still to this day, we really have have uh, no idea what the what their names are, where they were from. There's just so much we don't know, which is pretty unusual um, when you think about how a, a murder case is generally solved. Police start with the identity of the victim. Most people are killed by people that they knew. So you can sort of begin with the list of people that the victim knew. But in this case, police couldn't even get started because they could never figure out who those people were. So then 15 years later, there's a second barrel that's discovered in the state park. Why did it take so long to find this second barrel? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question and one that always comes up when you talk about the Bear Brook case. It was, it was in the year 2000, 15 years after the first barrel was discovered, a, a state trooper detective working the case as a cold case was just familiarizing himself with the details, had never been out to the area where the barrel was found. So he went out there one day, his first trip to the scene, and found a second barrel with two more bodies in it, just 300 feet from where the first barrel was found. You know, it's hard to know for sure why that second barrel wasn't found initially. You know, there's there's a lot of factors that could have played into it. One was that there was another murder on that same weekend in 1985 when the first barrel was discovered that went on to become another sort of in famous or infamous cold case in New Hampshire history. So police may have been overwhelmed. But also, you know, this was the 1980s in a small town in New Hampshire. There wasn't a lot of precedent for this kind of casework. When I was speaking with Officer Montpleasure, who found the first barrel, he talked to me about the kind of police work they were doing back in the 80s. We used to call it, let's go fishing. You know, you'd make a motor vehicle stop and you knew somebody that may have known some information about a crime. My, my line was, you know any good fishing spots? And uh, they knew what I was talking about. We weren't actually going fishing, but, you know, that meant the difference between, I mean, either receiving a warning or receiving a summons or just helping me out. And there was always somebody that knew a good fishing spot. <laughs> always. So he's he's describing the the ways in which they they did investigations at the time. It doesn't sound as though this was a a team of people who were well tasked with uh, with investigating the type of murders that that we saw there. Perhaps not. Although you know, I do think it's worth saying that other investigators over the years took their own cracks at this case and failed just as just as well. So. You know, there's something to be said about the way this case was initially investigated, and there's also a lot to be said about just how 
baffling and, and uh, mysterious it has been from, from the beginning, from 1985. But, but you say that this case it did change the way that murders would be investigated from, from that time forward. Why is that? Tell us more about that. Yeah, and that, that's really what most interests me about the story personally is, is the way that this case was solved or, or I should say partially solved. We still don't know who the victims are, but we do know a lot, including who killed them, or, or at least police believe they have a really good idea of that. And that was because of this new technique, new forensic science technique that's based on genetic genealogy. And listeners may have heard the news earlier this year about the Golden State Killer arrest in that case. And that's the same technique. The, the investigators working the Golden State Killer case were inspired by the use of the technique on the Bear Brook case. And so it's a really fascinating and remarkable use of public DNA databases where people have been spitting into tubes and mailing them into companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. There is a way for police now, and, and genealogists have been doing it for a while, to to use that those databases to find distant relatives of people they are looking to track down the identity of, and then they build family trees. And then they're able to to do things that traditional detective techniques that other forensic techniques just haven't been able to do. And so it's really opened up this whole new front for investigations, uh, this new forensic front. Cold cases that police have been frustrated with for decades are now, you know, they, they now have new hope. That was Jason Moon, a reporter for NHPR and host of the new Bear Brook podcast. You can find out more information about both podcasts, Last Seen and Bear Brook, at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we hear about two entrepreneurs who are turning kombucha into vodka. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Finally, we're going to meet some people who have, well, let's just say unusual jobs. Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill went looking for the hidden men who keep the traffic flowing on both roads and rivers. They're bridge tenders who operate those ancient drawbridges and swing bridges that make our coastal communities unique. When you drive over the Grand Avenue Swing Bridge in New Haven, look up and you'll see a house. Inside that house is a bridge tender, someone like Maurice Little, who is waiting patiently. Some people don't want to do it because it's, it's, it's like a boring job because you're just sitting there all day waiting on a radio call. Boats call when they want to pass, making sure those bridges are open when needed. It's a lot of waiting. My wife, she knows, she said, oh, your job is boring. No, it's not boring. I'm used to it. I, I enjoy my job. Between radio calls, Little says he passes the time with a book or on his computer. His colleague Mike Dorsey says even though the job can be slow sometimes, bridge tenders perform a vital service. Somebody has to be on these bridges at all times because Coast Guard might need to come through. If there's an emergency on the river. And there are commercial necessity too. Oyster fishermen who travel to Quinnipiac need those bridges open to farm in Long Island Sound. And then there are everyday boats filled with summer hobbyists looking to pass time out on the ocean. I told Dorsey I wanted to go up into that curious house on the Grand Avenue swing bridge. 
He opens the gate and we climb a metal staircase buffeted by winds. As we walk, cars and buses breeze by underneath. The whole bridge shakes. People don't usually like look up here. They just, you know, ride right, right through. Not even knowing that we're up here. It's crazy. Inside the house is a giant control panel with numbered switches like one that turns traffic lights red. Another button drops a safety gate to block walkers and cars, and there are buttons to actually rotate the bridge. Grand Avenue became a swing bridge in 1896, so the whole process is not automated. Instead, it relies on the eye. Bridge tender Maurice Little remembers the first time his eyeballs were in charge. It was scary. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I started over here on Grand Avenue. You got to be able to line the streets and the lines up. After you watch and say, okay, I know I need to let the button go once, once the angle of the bridge hits right here, and then everything kind of lines itself up. But after that, it's, it's, it's a piece of cake. Mike Dorsey asks if I want to see one more bridge. It's on Ferry Street, a 1940s drawbridge just a few hundred feet south. We make a quick scoot down the Quinnipiac, and minutes later, Dorsey introduces me to another colleague. Johnson! Bridge tender Mike Johnson. Johnson says tending to bridges can sometimes be slow, but it can also be peaceful, attuning him to nature. In the winter, you get to see the sun set over near the uh, cement tanks, and then in the summer, you get to see it set over New Haven, over the downtown area. For the several hours I was out on the river, I only saw one call an oysterman who was headed out to the sound and needed to pass underneath the Ferry Street Bridge. But Johnson says the slow days are okay. I'm not stressed out every day, going home stressed out, and this definitely takes that edge off, which is, these days, it's something to be said about. As I left, Johnson headed back up to his tower, anticipating the next radio call. Until then, he'll watch the horizon, and he'll wait. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. We've been reporting on the slow rollout of legal marijuana across New England, but there's an associated industrial crop, hemp, that's already churning out a legal product called CBD. Those letters stand for cannabidiol, a compound found in hemp that's been widely available for many uses. The market research firm New Frontier Data, well, they estimate that Americans spent $367 million on CBD products last year, and they expect sales to top a billion by 2020. John Kalish went to Vermont to meet the hemp farmers who are growing for this growing market, and he starts by taking us to the University of Vermont. When I visited the UVM research farm in Alberg in July, there were two acres of hemp in the ground growing next to a field of winter rye. Not all of it was for CBD research. Abba Gupta is the crops and soil coordinator for UVM Extension. We've got two different varieties of fiber and three different varieties of grain. They were planted out at three different planting dates. Lawmakers created an official state research and development program for hemp in Vermont. Agronomist Heather Darby thinks that, along with the widespread availability of seed, are creating a growing interest in hemp. And many Vermonters have been calling her for advice. Most people are looking for markets. Some of the questions are, is this a real opportunity or is it just a bubble we see floating by? You know, where can we actually tap into this? And the markets are really still developing. 
especially if we're not talking about CBD production. But CBD is what everyone's talking about. Although the FDA forbids claims about CBD's purported health benefits, demand for CBD as a treatment for pain, anxiety, insomnia, and other woes is growing. CBD is not psychoactive, which means it won't get you high. Kalev Freeman is a physician and scientist affiliated with the Nutraceutical Science Laboratory in Waterbury. CBD has not met the most rigorous levels of evidence, which would be randomized controlled trials at multiple centers. CBD hasn't met that criteria yet. Stepping back, however, there's historical and anecdotal and case report data that is so overwhelmingly in support of CBD's benefits that it's very hard to say that there's no evidence for it. Which is why a cottage industry has sprung up in Vermont producing a wide array of CBD products, capsules, tincture, doggy treats, body creams, beverages, and candy. At Nutty Steffs in Middlesex, you can buy CBD-infused chocolate in various doses and shapes. Jacqueline Fernandez-Riki owns the shop. CBD products are 30% of our sales this year. We introduced them six months ago. You sell a CBD chocolate bar three ounces for $20? Yes. Kind of a pricey chocolate bar. This is very much more than a chocolate bar. CBD is also showing up in honey, coffee, and tea. That's what's happening with the CBD from Joe and Rebecca Pimentel's hemp crop. They pay to have the CBD extracted from the hemp grown on their farm in Stockbridge. These are our greenhouses. So we have about five different strains of genetics here. The Pimentels opened a commercial kitchen in nearby Bethel to make CBD balm, honey, and tincture. They also collaborated with Long Trail Brewery on a CBD beer dubbed the Medicator, but it was ordered off the market by federal authorities. Their CBD is now used in a cold brew made by Abracadabra Coffee in Woodstock and by Dobra Tea and Tom Girl in Burlington. Both of those companies use our CBD-infused honey. I think you're going to see it everywhere. We sell hemp seeds and flowers, just about everything, including a stellar selection of CBD products and a heavy focus on organics. At the Green State Gardener store in Burlington, owner Dylan Rapp says his company will sell a million dollars in CBD products this year. He has his own line of CBD edibles, which includes a $50 bottle of CBD gummies. We're seeing boomers come in for joint pain, but we're also seeing a lot of millennials and really everybody coming in for anxiety and just the mood-stabilizing effect that CBD has. Rap will soon release CBD-infused sparkling water and soda. As a product class, I think the sky's the limit for CBD. There are now stores in Lindenville, St. Albans, Brattleboro, and Middlebury solely devoted to hemp or CBD products. Shane Lynn is the executive director of the Champlain Valley Dispensary, which runs two stores. He complains that profit margins are tight and suspects that prices for CBD will drop as the hemp supply grows. The acreage devoted to hemp in the U.S. more than doubled this year and has reportedly tripled in a couple of western states. You gotta think, hey, Kentucky, and then you gotta think Colorado. This is really a world marketplace. How are the Vermont farmers going to compete outside of Vermont? Among those who think this fall's hemp harvest will result in lower prices is Joel Bedard, the founder of the Vermont Hemp Company. 
But everyone's so excited about cannabinoids and they want to try and make some good money first and then when it all stabilizes, they're going to realize, okay, this actually is a food crop. This is so much more than just cannabinoids. CBD, of course, is not the only cannabinoid. There are others with reputed medical benefits, including CBG and CBC. Seth Crawford, a hemp seed breeder in Oregon, predicts that CBG is poised to take off. Crawford notes that the crystalline form of CBD sells for as much as $5,000 a pound, and that crystalline CBG goes for triple that amount. As new cannabinoids become available, they become expensive. When these new compounds come online, it's substantial amounts of money that can be made by farmers in this industry. Crawford's Oregon-bred hemp seeds account for about 50 acres of this year's Vermont hemp crop. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Kalish. A few years ago, it would have been hard to find a bottle of kombucha at your local grocery store. The fermented drink is made from tea, sugar, bacteria, and yeast. And it's, well, let's just say it's an acquired taste. But these days, the tart, fizzy probiotic beverages, it's everywhere. As Rebecca Shear tells us, a pair of neighboring entrepreneurs in Vermont are now taking kombucha somewhere new behind the bar. In 2009, Jeff Weber was brewing his organic Aqua Vitae kombucha out of his basement and selling it at farmer's markets, co-ops, and other stores across Vermont. One day, who should knock on Weber's door but gun-toting agents from the State Department of Liquor Control and the Federal Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, or TTB. And they spent the next four or five hours with me digging through our process, taking samples, um, investigating the property, looking for distilling equipment and other things. So it was a very nerve-wracking afternoon. The agents had been studying the burgeoning kombucha market, And in the eyes of the law, some brands of the fermented drink, including Jeff Weber's, had alcohol levels that legally were elevated. When you say elevated, what was it supposed to be and what were yours? A non-alcoholic product needs to be under 0.5%. That's 0.5% alcohol by volume, or ABV. And we saw things as high as 2.5%. That's more than some light beers. So Weber reached out to the Department of Food Science at Cornell. We started doing a lot of biological work understanding how to manipulate, I guess you'd say, the the fermentation to keep the alcohol down. Which is easier said than done. Kombucha is a complex fermentation. It's got two yeasts and it's got multiple strands of bacteria and all these other things that when you DNA test them have never been identified before. Weber started experimenting with ways to lower the alcohol level. Meanwhile, his growing company moved to an industrial park in Middlebury. It was there that they began using a machine developed for the wine industry, one that spins liquid and uses pressure to extract alcohol. So I realized early on that we were going to have a byproduct of alcohol. What I didn't realize was how much we were going to have. Containers full, it turns out. And Jeff Weber didn't want all this organic, 120-proof alcohol to go to waste. Luckily, he found the answer 300 yards away. Across the street in the industrial park was a business Ooh, you should smell that. with tanks full of alcohol. That's our tequila. Yes, it is. Can you smell maple, though? Yeah, it's 80% agave and a 20% Vermont maple syrup. Lars Hubbard co-owns Appalachian Gap Distillery. The solar-powered spirits manufacturer prides itself on using interesting local ingredients, from slow-drip coffee to, yes, maple syrup. Now, the company can add Jeff Weber's Aqua Vitae Kombucha to that list. Jeff came over and 
we sat down and talked about the problem that they were having, and we decided to do a test batch and see how it worked out. That test batch turned into aqua vodka, a sweet, fruity, even slightly bitter organic spirit made from aquavites leftover alcohol. They ship it over to us at about 60% alcohol, and we redistill it. And then we get about 40% of the total alcohol they send to us is good, clean ethanol. And so that's what becomes aqua vodka. And you had to sort of tinker with it before you found something you were truly happy with? I confess we're still tinkering with it. (laughs) A lot of what we do is just sort of learn by doing because no one's ever done this before. And as such, the feds didn't know what to do with it including how to designate what kind of liquor it was. Because we're making this from a spirit that is already infused with flavor, we can't actually call it a pure vodka because the way it's defined within the TTB, it's not vodka. And now on the label it says vodka with natural flavor. We have to put that with natural flavor part or or we're breaking the law. But despite the bureaucratic hoops, Jeff Weber says aqua vodka has been received well by the public. You can buy bottles of it in five states, including Vermont and Massachusetts. And Levi's Stadium, home of the San Francisco 49ers, has featured a signature cocktail made with the spirit. So making vodka from kombucha has been mutually beneficial for these across-the-street neighbors. This is like a match made in heaven. (laughs) Seems to work. (laughs) I just wish there was a pipeline and we didn't actually have to drive it over here. That would help. (laughs) (laughs) For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear. Just like the last scene in Bear Brook, you can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. Thank you. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski, and the digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill, and you can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York, and also the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, The Publix Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.